we are coming down to the wire here. We're coming down to the final section of, actually we're, we're entering into the final section of this sermon that, as we've said many times, is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And beginning in, in Matthew chapter five, going all the way here through the end of chapter seven. And we've been looking at this for quite some time. And if you were here last week, you remember that I, uh, I, I pointed out to us that the 12th verse is really the conclusion of the instructional part of the sermon. So when we come to verse 13, that's where we pick up today. We're, we're transitioning now from the, the teaching part where Jesus is basically telling us as his people, citizens of his kingdom, this is what your lives are going to look like in the world. So now we're moving from that into this final exhortation. Now, the setting, let me just remind you, Jesus, he is there on um, a hillside in the, the region of the Sea of Galilee. And it says, as Jesus, he saw the multitude, and then it says, and he called his disciples to himself, and he began to teach them. So the message is first and foremost to his disciples, his followers, but also we have to understand that that the multitudes that would have been there would have begun to press in to hear what Jesus would say. And so here at the end of the sermon, having give the, given the instruction, I think now his appeal is not simply to those who are already following him, but, but I think we can see when we look at it that his appeal is broader. He's now having laid out the, the ethic of the kingdom He's now inviting people into it. So that's what we have in the verses that we're going to look at today. So um, Jesus having spelled out what life in the kingdom is going to look like, he calls his hearers now really to make a choice. So that's what Jesus is doing now. Up until this point, he hasn't so much done that. Now he's going to call them to make a choice. Is it going to be a life marked by poverty of spirit, meekness, purity of heart, and peacemaking. These are the things that he taught in the early part of the sermon. Or a life of self-centeredness leading to things like adultery, divorce, dishonesty, vengeance, and hatred. Is it going to be a life marked by sincerity and heartfelt devotion to God? Or of hypocrisy with merely outward shows of religion rooted in self-righteousness. That was the contrast. That's, that's what was happening with the religious leaders at the time. Uh, is it going to be a life devoted to attaining riches for selfish consumption and serving wealth and power, or a life of trusting in your heavenly Father and seeking his kingdom and righteousness above all else? Are we going to choose, this is what it's coming down to, are we going to choose to live in that kingdom that's ethic is do to others as you would have them do to you? Are we going to subject ourselves to the rule and reign of Christ here and now? 
So Jesus is now calling for a decision. He's calling for people to make a decision in following him in the kingdom that he is establishing. As John Stott wrote, is it to be the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God, the prevailing culture or the Christian counterculture? So there's the prevailing culture then, just like there's the prevailing culture now. There's the new culture that Jesus is creating among his followers, the, the Christian counterculture. And so he's saying, which is, which is it going to be? And he does this by, first of all, speaking about two ways. There, there are, are basically two paths. And then he's going to give us a, a warning about the possibility of deception. He's gonna talk about false teachers. And then finally, he's going to make sure that people understand that it's doing what God said that ultimately matters. Not just a profession, but the, the reality has to be in our lives. So let's look at those things, beginning first of all with the two ways. So he says, um, he says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So Jesus tells us that there is the broad or the wide road. And you know, th these are passages that I don't know if everybody's real familiar with them, but you know, the, these are passages that once you encounter them, you realize, wow, this is, this is pretty amazing what Jesus is saying. He's talking about uh, the, the, the wide and the broad road, and he's saying that this is the road that pretty much everybody's on. But then he's talking about a narrow path that few are on. Again, to quote John Stott, who will be my co preacher today, because I'm going to quote him extensively. So um, I've leaned upon him for a, a lot uh, from his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. But he said this, he said, um, regarding the, the broad or the wide road, he said, there's plenty of room on it for diversity of opinions and laxity of morals. It is the road of tolerance and permissiveness it has no curbs, no boundaries of either thought or conduct. Travelers on this road follow their own inclinations, that is the desires of the human heart in its fallenness. This is why the broad road is easy. The broad road is easy because it's the way of the world. It's the way that everybody is going. It's going with what you feel like and having no regard for anything else, having no regard at all for uh, what God has said about how to live life. C.S. Lewis, who we often refer to, uh, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he describes 
how as a young teenager, this is fascinating, that young teenager, about 13 years old, sometimes we fail to realize how um, early on a person can start making major decisions regarding deep spiritual things. So he talks about at the age of 13, he says he began to broaden his mind. Now, ultimately, Lewis became an atheist, and it wasn't until he was in his early 30s that he became a Christian. But listen to what he said. He said, I soon, I was soon altering, I believe, to one does feel. So moving away from the conviction, I believe, now to the more subjective, one does feel. And oh, the relief of it, he says. From the tyrannous noon of revelation, I passed into the cool evening twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to be believed except what was either comforting or exciting. Such an interesting way he describes it. From, from the tyrannous noon of revelation, he's talking about how, um, you know, like the sun would beat down on you at noon. He's talking about how revelation, uh, God's truth, would, was beating down on him, and he came out from under that. We've talked on occasion about um, the idea of deconstruction deconstruct there are people today this is the term that's that's uh, common today uh, people are deconstructing their faith you know people used to just kind of backslide or walk away from the lord or sometimes the word apostatize might be used but now the common word is deconstruct and i think deconstruct is probably good because because this is more of a thoughtful process than what people maybe were going through in the past when they would leave the faith. So deconstruct means there are people out there who are trying to dismantle the Christian faith in order to justify their leaving it. And not only are they trying to dismantle it, they want to encourage others to dismantle as well. So I've read a number of deconstruction stories from quite often one-time Christian celebrities who have left the faith. And many talk about, that this is common, this comes up almost every time, many talk about how much better they feel now that they don't have to be concerned with living up to some outside standard imposed on them by their church or the Bible. And every one of these stories has had this element to it. Like, oh, I feel, I feel so much better now. Now that I'm, I, I'm, I just don't have to worry about anything anymore. I, I don't have to worry about whether I'm doing anything right or wrong or any of that. I, I'm now free. It's kind of like what Lewis was saying. You know, I've come out from underneath uh, the tyranny of, of that scorching sun of conviction into this, this twilight of just, hey, it, it's whatever I think or whatever I feel. So the broad road is the easy road in that you can just go about it without having to worry, am I doing anything wrong? Am I going to have to 
suffer some consequences for this at some point. That's what's happening in people's minds. Of course, the problem is that at the end of the road, Jesus tells us there's basically a cliff that people are going to fall off of. The end of the road leads to destruction. But then Jesus speaks of the narrow, the narrow path, the hard path. Straight is the gate, or narrow is the gate, and, and difficult is the way. Now, the road is difficult or hard, as some translations would have it, because its boundaries are clearly marked. Again, to quote from John Stott, he says, its, its narrowness is due to something called divine revelation. Now, divine revelation, everybody understands, I think. This, this means scripture. This is what God has said. Divine revelation, uh, which restricts believers to the confines of what God has revealed in scripture to be true and good. It is a fact that revealed truth imposes a limitation on what Christians may believe and revealed goodness on how we may behave. And in a sense, this is hard. Well, in a sense, it's hard because it's different than what everybody else is doing. That's one of the hard things about it. You're, you're going to be the minority. Everybody else is just they're going along this wide road. It's easy to get onto. Everybody's traveling on it. Just this, this seems like the place. And then, oh, there's this narrow path over here. That this just seems so restrictive and, and so difficult and, and so challenging. So in one sense, yes, it's hard. But as um, Chrysostom said many centuries ago, Christ's hard and narrow way is also the easy yoke and the light burden. You know, the reality is, for those of us that have traveled the wide road, which I traveled for a period of my life, I was on that wide road. It was, it was easy to be on that road because everybody was on that road. But let me tell you, there were some major potholes in the road. There were some major chasms that you could fall into. And so the narrow road, yes, it's harder, but guess what? The narrow path is much smoother. And so the truth is, even though it's hard in one sense, there's another sense where it is easy and the burden is light. So now Jesus, he says here, enter through the narrow gate. So he's talking about entrance and he's talking about then traveling on the road. So the entrance, enter through the narrow gate. What is the, what is the narrow gate? Well, I think really Jesus is referring to himself. He is the entrance onto this road. And the narrowness is due to the fact that he is the only entrance. In John chapter 10, verse 9, we read Jesus saying these words. He says, I am the gate. I am the gate. So he tells us, enter in at the narrow gate. I am the gate. One can only 
enter to the path. And, and remember, one path, the wide one leads to destruction. The other path leads to life. The only entrance to the path to life is through Jesus. And so that's the first exhortation that he gives. Now from there, he goes on and he warns his listeners about the danger of false prophets. People who would come and look like followers of Jesus, but they would have a different message. So false prophets and false teachers have always been a danger that God's people have had to watch out for. And so here Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. So this is not new. This historically, looking back over the history of the people of Israel, you find the prophets of God were often opposed by false prophets. In the court of the kings, there would be moments where the, the, the prophet would come in and give the word of the Lord, and immediately a false prophet would stand up and oppose him, and sometimes even abuse them. So th this was something that happened. Jesus says this is also going to be a reality in the future among his people. The Apostle Paul, when he was departing from Ephesus, he said this to the elders. So Paul establishes a church in Ephesus. He's there for a season. He's going to leave. He gathers the leaders of the church together, and he says this. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. Be on your guard. Now, the apostle Peter said something very similar. He wrote in his second letter, he said, just as there were false prophets among the people of Israel, there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So Jesus is warning his followers to be aware of false prophets. False prophets will come along. And he tells us that they are essentially wolves in sheep's clothing. So the danger with a false prophet is they're hard to detect sometimes. Again, John Stott, I think he put it very well. He said, a false teacher does not announce and advertise himself as a peddler of lies. On the contrary, he claims to be a teacher of the truth. Knowing that Christians are credulous people, he conceals his dark purpose beneath the cloak of Christian piety, hoping that his innocuous disguise will avert detection. Not only does he feign piety, but he often uses the language of historic orthodoxy in order to win acceptance from the gullible 
while meaning by it something quite different, something destructive of the very truth he pretends to hold. He also hides behind the cover of high-sounding titles and academic degrees. Now, let me just remind you, I've mentioned, I've quoted John Stott many times before, and the other guys in teaching have as well. I just want to put this in the context. John Stott was a, um, he was an Anglican clergyman in England. At one, in one season of his life, he was the, he was the personal pastor to the royal family. Uh, he was 100% uh, orthodox in his convictions, but he lived in a context where there were false prophets around him. So, so as he's writing these things, he's actually writing from his own experience. So when he uses terms like high-sounding titles and academic degrees, he's talking about what he would be surrounded with. And then he goes on, he says, we must not be dazzled by a person's outward clothing, charm, learning, doctorates, and ecclesiastical honors. We must not be so naive as to suppose that because he is a PhD or a doctor of divinity or a professor or a bishop, he must be a true and orthodox ambassador of Christ. So, so Stott is saying, you know, people can look a certain way and they can have positions in the church and they can also simultaneously be false prophets. So how do we know? Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. By their fruit, you will know them. What, what, what is that fruit? How, how can we detect if a person is a false prophet? Well, the first thing I think we would look at is their life, their life. Are they Christ-like? Are they, are they truly Christ-like? Are they, um, do they, do they demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, love and patience and kindness and humility and goodness and self-control? Are these things evident in their life? Now, we have to realize that some people can fake it pretty well. So it might, you might look at them and say, oh, look at that, they're, they are so kind and they're so loving and they're, they're so humble. Maybe so. That could actually be the case, but it could be that behind a cloak of darkness, there's something totally different. But that is one way we, we can look at the lifestyle. And quite often when a person is a false prophet, it ultimately comes out that what they say is often completely different than what they're actually doing, but not always. But the second thing is sound doctrine. Remember, we're talking about false prophets. So what we're talking about is people who say things that are not actually true. So we have to remember, it's not simply looking at the lifestyle. That's not how we make the final judgment. We have to include the test of doctrine because the false prophet you know the bible speaks of false prophets plural many throughout history the book of revelation speaks specifically of one false prophet the false prophet that will accompany the person we commonly call the antichrist and you know what it says about him it says he has the appearance of a he has the appearance of a lamb but he speaks like a dragon whoa 
He looks like a prophet. He looks like a lamb. What did Jesus say? He said, wolves in sheep's clothing. So the, the false prophet will be the ultimate manifestation of this. But he speaks like a dragon. His, his doctrine is demonic. That's what is being stated by Jesus. And so this is, this is, our, this is our test. Anyone claiming to be a teacher or prophet in the church who denies the person of Jesus, meaning who the Bible says he is, and distorts his and the apostles' teaching is a false prophet. Now, I specifically wanted to include the apostles' teaching. You know, there are some people that are mistakenly thinking that, um, well, you know, whatever Jesus said, that, that's what we go with, and we don't have to bother with the rest of it. There, there are some people that even refer to, them, to themselves as red-letter Christians. You know what a red-letter Christian is? A red-letter Christian, the, in many, many Bibles, most Bibles these days, the words of Jesus are in red letters. So when they say I'm a red-letter Christian, that means they only adhere to the words of Jesus. Now, I have found even people who say that only adhere to about a third of the words of Jesus. They, there's a lot of red letters that they missed. <laughs> but listen, the words of Jesus and the words of Paul and the words of Peter, they're all the same words. They're God's words. And we can never pit the apostolic teaching against the teaching of Jesus. They're teaching the same thing. Jesus said things that were incomplete. It wasn't his intention to tell everything. He actually said to his apostles at one point, he said, um, I have many more things to tell you, but right now you can't endure them. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will tell you, he will teach you all things. And that, of course, is what we have laid down for us in the scriptures. So, again, anyone claiming to be a teacher or prophet in the church who denies the person of Jesus, who says that, well, Jesus isn't really God in human flesh. Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin. Jesus didn't really die a vicarious death on the cross. Jesus didn't really rise up bodily from the grave. That's a denial of the person of Jesus. So anyone who denies the person of Jesus and distorts his and the apostles' teaching is a false prophet. Now I want to circle back around to the Church of England. Because this is, right this moment, the things that John Stott warned about. John Stott went home to be with Jesus, uh, gosh, 10 years ago, something like that. I can't remember exactly, at the age of 90-something. But anyway, these are the things that he was talking about. So the current archbishops of Canterbury and York, they are prime examples of what we are talking about. They, along with many other bishops, have just, listen, this past week, we're not talking about ancient church history here. 
This past week, after months of pleading from those who want to uphold the biblical sexual ethic, rejected their pleas and imposed upon the Church of England the blessing of same-sex unions. So now these, these guys, and remember he talked about their titles and their, their apparel, you know, there they are decked out in the regalia of the archbishops of the church, and they're pushing onto the church um, things that are contrary to the plain teaching of scripture. I have a friend in England, he is also a, an, Angli an Anglican clergyman, his name is Ed Shaw, and Ed, um, just over the past couple of days, he, he wrote this, and I wanna read it, to, to show you like the pushback, the, the rightful pushback. The interesting thing about Ed though is that Ed is a same-sex attracted uh, Christian. So he, that's, he lives with that reality of same-sex attraction, but he chooses to live in obedience to scripture. And so he basically has decided that he will either live his life celibate or perhaps one day the Lord would work in his heart in a way that he would actually marry a woman. Um, but whether or not that happens, he, he's committed to scripture. But, but this is what he said in response to what happened this past week. He just said this um, day before yesterday. He said, at the heart of everything is the damaging error that it's okay to reject Jesus's teaching that marriage is for one man and one woman, and that sex is for marriage. The rejection of this foundational biblical teaching has always hurt women and children the most, but negatively impacts us all. And then he says this, he says, driving such rejection is often the cruel cultural misunderstanding that sex is necessary for a fulfilled life. So he says that the justification on the part of, say, these archbishops and the other bishops is that, well, you know, if, if we're telling people that they, they can't have sex because they're same-sex attracted and that kind of sex is prohibited by God, then we're being cruel to them. And we're depriving them of something that they need in order to really fully enjoy their humanity. Um, Ed says that, remember, he's same-sex attracted. Uh, he says that he doesn't buy that. He says the lives of many single people throughout the centuries, Jesus included, have told a different, a much better story. And then he goes on finally and he says this, a two-thirds majority of the Church of England senior bishops now seem to agree with our culture that marriage is not just for one man, and one woman, and that sex is not just for marriage. Many perhaps hope that this will help us better connect with the culture. And so often these are the, these are the, the justifications that are brought forth for this type of thing. Back in the early 20th century when there was an introduction of what's called the social gospel, the social gospel was basically, hey, let's just go out and do good things in the name of Jesus. And let's get rid of things in the Bible like miracles and stuff because that's, that's going to get people confused. 
Now, people don't believe in, in miracles. So if you say there are miracles, that's just going to hinder what we're doing. We want to, um, we want to make the gospel as appealing as we possibly can. So let's ditch the miracles. Let's just do good things. And that was their justification for denying the miraculous. And so it's the same thing. That they're saying now, well, you know, the culture has embraced same-sex relationships. The church is lagging behind the culture. If we want people to come and be part of what we're doing, we just need to get on board with what the culture is doing. But Ed finally says, he says, sadly, all the historical and contemporary evidence shows us that churches that go with cultural sexual ethics soon disappear. That's the reality. That's the reality. Listen, we're living in a time when some people are going to say, hey, Christians, tone it down. You know, your message isn't really, um, you know, the culture today. That's, that's just people are having a problem with your message. No, the truth is this is the time, if there ever was a time, this is a time we have to speak the truth. We have to speak the truth. Now, of course, we speak the truth in love. But oftentimes, it, the truth period is going to be the rub with people. You can say it as lovingly as you want, and people just, they don't want to hear truth. But our commitment is to proclaim the truth. That's what Jesus said to do. He goes on and he says, um, he just, an illustration, let me read it. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit, a bad tree cannot bear bad, a bad, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, thus by their fruits you shall know them. And then he goes on and he says this, which is, Everything's been intense, right, <laughs> up until this point. This is the most intense thing I think he says in the section. Then he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Wow, what? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, You have perception and you have reality. The perception is, Lord, Lord. And then he goes on and he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? That's perception. Lord, Lord, we know you. We've done all of this stuff. But the reality, Jesus says, is I never knew you. Now, here's the question. The question is, did they really do those kinds of things in Jesus' name and not know him? Or did they just claim to have done them, but they really did not do them? I don't know what the answer to that is. But let's remember, everybody knows the name Judas, right? You know the name Judas? Judas could say himself what is being voiced here. 
Because there's no reason to believe that when Jesus sent out the disciples, the two and two together, and gave them power over unclean spirits and so forth to heal and, and all of that, there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that Judas wasn't part of that. There's plenty of reason to believe that he was. Nobody knew the true nature of Judas until the very end when he was exposed uh, at, at the Last Supper. Or, be, or really in the garden when he brought the, the band of soldiers to arrest Jesus. Then it was clear, but before that, nobody knew. So it could be that Jesus is, is talking about people who have a profession and have somewhat of an appearance of an attachment to Jesus and have even had activity of the Spirit working around them, but not really knowing the Lord. That was Judas. You see, because you, you wonder like, well, gosh, how would God, why would God work in a situation where somebody was really false? Well, I've thought about that and I think, you know, God loves people, so he's gonna help people, he's gonna bless people, he's gonna work with the people who are in need and sometimes the instrument is just, that, that's not the point. And the deception that a person goes deeper into is to think that, well, I'm doing these things, therefore I must be okay, even though the reality is I'm not really living according to God's word. So the perception is, Lord, Lord, we've done these, these many works in your name. The reality, though, Jesus says is, I never knew you. I never knew you. And then he says, here in the NIV it says, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers. The, the Greek is a little bit stronger. The other translations, I think, make it clear. Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or iniquity. And the emphasis there is on the, your workers. You're, you're actively engaged in evil. I never knew you. You see, the truth is, for every person who comes to know Jesus, and coming to know Jesus is, it's, it's um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's as simple as if after church, you are here and you say, um, I don't know Brian, I, I wanna go meet him. And if you walked up and said, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I said, hi, I'm Brian, great to meet you. It, it, it's that simple, to meet Jesus, to meet him like that. But here's the thing, when you meet Jesus, something happens to you. When you meet him in the way that the Bible refers to, when you know him the way the Bible is speaking here, Jesus says, I never knew you. When you come to know him, something happens. There is a change that takes place in one's life, and it's instant on one level, but then it begins a process that works throughout your entire life. So the question is, do we know him? Have we met him? The Bible uses the term born again. The theological term is regeneration, and when a person meets Jesus in the real sense, Regeneration takes place, a new life begins, and that is a life that is in the process of transformation.
So you see what Jesus says is, get away from me, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. People who never had a life-changing encounter with the Lord, which is the only real legitimate encounter that there is. I was, I was trying to put it in just a, a simple, clear frame for us. So the kingdom belongs to those who do the will of the Father. That's what Jesus said. He said, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but those who do the will of my Father. So what is the will of the Father? There are different places where we could find statements to the effect of what the will of the Father is. But I think here, I think we can use Paul's words to Titus to sum up what, what it, the will of the Father would be. Listen to what it says. Titus chapter two, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's what we're talking about here. Those who do the will of my Father. The Father calling a people to be his very own. A people that would be desirous to do his will and to do those good things. That's, those are the ones that will enter the kingdom. Those are the ones that will be part of the kingdom that is now partially present and will ultimately be revealed at the coming again of Jesus. So to conclude, I am going to call on my friend John Stott one more time. And he says this, to recapitulate, there are according to Jesus only two ways, hard and easy. There's no middle way. Entered by two gates, broad and narrow, there is no other gate. Trodden by two crowds, large and small, there is no neutral group. Ending in two destinations, destruction and life, there is no third option. Now, of course, that makes people upset, uncomfortable. Wait, you know, come on, I, that, that just sounds extreme. Is, isn't there like a, can't I find a happy medium here? I mean, I, you know, I, I don't wanna be an extremist. People in general love what Aristotle called the via media, the middle path. With Jesus, there is no via media, there is no middle way. There is the narrow path to life or the wide road to destruction. And we choose. We choose. But his appeal is enter at the narrow gate that leads to life. 
and he invites all. And so on that day, on that hillside, as he finished this message, he'll go one more and talk about the, the two foundations, which Char will finish up next week with. Uh, but he's now giving that invitation so that people understand there is one way. It is a narrow path. It leads to life. He is the gate we must choose. So Lord, help us today as we weigh these things out, as we think about all of this. Lord, as we're living in a time and in a place where there's so much pressure to concede to the culture. Lord, help us to hold fast to your words. Help us, Lord, to stay on the narrow path that leads to life. We thank you, Lord, that you empower us by your spirit and through your word to do that very thing. And so, Lord, as we have before us today the, the bread and the cup that remind us of the narrow path that you took in order to give us life, as we contemplate that, Lord, may we be renewed in our devotion to you, we pray. Amen.